0: good evening everyone and welcome I'm pleased that not heat or pandemic or power outages have thwarted us holding this event Uh, that I think bodes well for a successful conversation I'm Mackie Raymond and I'm the program director for education here at the Hoover Institution and I have the pleasure of introducing today's guest and host. There are many ways to have a life of public service, and while their paths to cabinet posts differed, both Betsy DeVos and Condoleezza Rice built enormous records of service. In Mrs. DeVos's case, she rose to become the 11th United States Secretary of Education after first building a deep and impressive record of impact as a social activist, as a board leader of advocacy organizations, as a valued political advisor, and as a philanthropist. She's captured her experience as education secretary in a new book. It's called Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child. It's published by Hachette Book Group. And I have to say, having read it, If you want a front-row seat to a carnival of insanity, this one's for you. (laughs) For our own Dr. Rice, her trail blazed through early terms at the State Department and later on the National Security Council, as a political scientist and later provost at Stanford, as a board member in her own right with education-focused organizations, and before returning to Stanford and Hoover, serving as the 66th United States Secretary of State. We now have the honor to call her the Tad and Diane Toby Director of the Hoover Institution. Each in their own way have become titans in the fight for better school options and better life outcomes for America's children. They are both fierce activists, strong voices, and warriors seasoned by the conflicts and controversies that are part of cabinet level service. If they weren't alpha chicks before, they certainly earned their stripes then. Now the conventional wisdom, and this is gender neutral, is that you don't want two alphas in the same room. But lucky for us, they're on the same team. So please join me in welcoming Secretary Betsy DeVos and Secretary Condoleezza Rice.
1: Well, thank you very much. I don't think I've ever had a better introduction, uh, (laughs) Betsy. I don't know about you, but Mackie, thank you very much. And Mackie Raymond, who is doing uh, so much here at Hoover, uh, to give us an opportunity at the institution uh, to do what I think Herbert Hoover hoped when he said that we could improve the human condition uh, there may be nothing more important to improving the human condition than a first-class education for every child, and so I'm really looking forward uh, to this conversation. Secretary DeVos, but I'll have to call you Betsy because we've Please known each do. other way too long. I, I just have to say a word about, um, we, we met in various uh, ways, but um, I have to just relay Uh, relate a little story. Um, We were at a board meeting, a board dinner, in fact, uh, for Jeb Bush's uh, foundation, Excellence in Education, where we both served on the board. When word came uh, that Betsy had been named as the um, nominee for Secretary of Education, and I can't tell you what excitement there was in the room, because we knew that uh, Washington was not going to have a fierce fighter and a fierce voice. Uh, For the rights of our children for the rights of uh, parents uh, to that first-class education And so I'm just so glad to welcome you to Hoover. I'm also uh, Happy to welcome to Hoover uh, Dick DeVos who's uh, Betsy's uh, spouse other half Uh, Dick of course is a business leader Uh, We've known each other also he's been engaged in all kinds of uh, philanthropic activities as well as business activities including in uh, education and so Uh, Very grateful to have you uh, here with us as well. And uh, Jim uh, Blue, is he? Yeah, there he is, right. Uh, Jim, the Assistant Secretary for Planning, Evaluation, and Policy uh, during uh, Betsy's time as Secretary uh, of um, Education, thank you for joining us and for all the work that you've done. So, um, you spent four years as Secretary of Education. And Mackey said something that's absolutely right. There's nothing quite like being a cabinet secretary. Uh, there are some wonderful times, like when you walk into the Congress, into the uh, Capitol for uh, the um, State of the Union mm. address, and they introduce the president's cabinet, and it's just great. The first time that you're sworn in, the first time that somebody calls you Madam Secretary, and then there's all the rest of it. And so um, yes. I would like you to talk just a little bit, uh, first and foremost, about the experience of public service um, in a key role, and, uh, and both the highs and the lows,
2: and how you approached that public service. Sure. Well, let me first say, um, Dr. Rice, and if I may call you Condi as well. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm so honored, and Mackie, for your very, very kind introduction. Um, It truly is an honor and privilege to be here with you and uh, have a few moments to talk about this really important issue. So I never set out to serve in a public office, and um, I hadn't really given it a lot of thought. Um, And so when actually going through the process of being confirmed, I didn't have anything to compare it to, so when I was told it was more difficult than it should be, I said, "Okay, I again don't have it a lot to compare it to," but it was, um, it, you know, it was tough getting there, getting into office, and then once there, uh, I, I would say some of the the, the highs were always just the um, the moments of. Uh, History and pageantry, and as you say, walking in for the the State of the Union address. And uh, Dick and I said more than once when we had opportunity to be at the White House for something or other, just you know, just being in the White House was was always a I called it pinch me moments. And um, and, and so that was that was really really special and um, and a real privilege. I would say other highs for me were particularly the school visits that I did, and I chose schools to visit that were doing things slightly differently. I wanted to highlight where people were being creative and really trying to meet students' needs. I would say on the other end, some of the lows were um, some of the real impediments that both the system and often individuals within the system put up to really making progress to focus our efforts all around uh students and their needs and uh doing the right things and making the right policy for them and uh and you i'm sure you experienced this condi that you know a large i I knew a large bureaucracy was going to be very large and cumbersome i just did not actually fathom how difficult it could be to get even some of the most simple things accomplished yeah well,
1: in your book, and I, I'm going to several times point you to Hostages No More <laughs> by Betsy DeVos, please purchase your copy um, or on Amazon.com if you cannot do it here.
2: And I read the audio book for those who, are, who like
1: to listen to the audio yeah. versions. So that's, that's terrific, too. Uh, but in Chapter 2, you have a really kind of provocative title. It's called The Un-American Education System. And uh, you write about the epiphany that you had as a parent. Uh, it caused you then to be a volunteer. Mm-hmm. And at some point it led you directly to the path of uh, advocacy and ultimately to be secretary. So um, you, you say that uh, it is, in, in this country, believe that it, we believe that it does not matter who your parents are We all have inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But when it comes to education in America, it very much matters who your parents are. Mm. Can you reflect a little bit more about this realization and how it helped shape uh, both your agenda as an advocate and as as, as an advocate, but also as
2: you entered the department? Certainly. Um, I began to get involved in education when uh, Dixon, my oldest son, Rick, was about to enter kindergarten. And Dick and I were blessed to know we were going to be able to have our children go wherever we thought was going to be best for them for school. So I looked around uh, the West Michigan area to see what some of our options were. And in the process of doing that, I discovered a little a Christian school in the heart of our city that was serving the students from that area and got to know the founders of the school and um, realized very quickly, uh, first of all, we didn't decide on Rick going to that school, but I got involved as a volunteer there and realized very quickly that for every child and family that was represented there, there were probably 10 or 20 other families in the neighborhood. That would have loved to have their ch- children in a setting like that. It was uh, it was a palpably nurturing and um, you know high expectations environment, and yet the school has to raise still today 90 percent of its operating funds as a tuition based school. Um, and so I started volunteering there, and the more I volunteered, the more I realized that it was really the policies that were precluding other families for, from having that kind of experience. So we started uh, scholarship programs for students in West Michigan, and then a statewide program, and um, and then moved on to really starting to advocate, advocate at the state level for policy change to provide families with more options and choices. And then um, over a period of time realized that just making a, an emotional appeal or a logical appeal was not going to make the difference in policy. Um, what really was needed was uh, political muscle along with the, um, the arguments that could be made to compel people to see the advantage and the, and the benefit of giving families <laughs> more choices and more freedom. Because today for most children, Um, they go to the school that is assigned to them by their zip code. And for all too many families that don't have the economic means to move somewhere else or to make another choice, uh, they're stuck there if that school does not work for their family. And that has really come home to roost and be revealed to many more families in the last couple of years
1: right and then let's talk a little bit more about so-called school choice Mm -hmm. Uh, because in fact we do have a choice system Uh, if you are of means you can move to a district where the schools are good the houses are expensive if you are really well off you can send your kids to private schools those are choices Mm -hmm. so in effect it's the parents who are poor who don't have uh choices And you've called it something else, which uh, I actually like better than school choice. You've talked about uh, educational freedom. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is a word that uh, perhaps appeals more to Americans when we think about the the value of freedom. Can you talk, though, a little bit about uh, school choice and also where you see the movement going uh, in these uh, next few years? Surely.
2: Well, and for many years, I have have referred to it with the term school choice. What I found in, in uh, the last several years that it, it is, uh, I, I think it helps paint a broader picture about what we're talking about when we talk about education freedom. Because for um, legislators in a rural area, for example, that may have one school for many communities that uh, gather you know from a multi-mile radius, they can't envision what a school choice would mean to families in that particular area. So I talk about the fact that maybe there's a few kids within that school that would learn better with a different pedagogy or a different approach to learning, and perhaps they uh, form a mi- micro school that cohabits within that building, or perhaps there are students in that, in that school that would like to take a class that they can't possibly offer, and yet they could learn from the finest professor in the world, perhaps on the other side of the globe, virtually. And so I encourage people to think more broadly about what education freedom really is. And um, you know the system that we have operated under for K-12 education is approximately 175 years old. It's changed very little. And, um, it, and I've, I've said often that education really is the least disrupted industry in our country. And some people bristle at the notion that education is an industry. But make no mistake about it; it has every element of an industry, every facet of an industry, and um, and yet it's it's supposed to be serving the most valuable part of our future, our children. And so, um, when I talk about education freedom, the the notion of really uh, giving the freedom and opportunity and the the financial power to families to drive the kind of change that needs to happen for their own children's experience gives us a broader look at what, what, we, um, what we could be experiencing, what kids could be experiencing today if we, if we sort of get outside of this one-size-fits-all, top-down, uh, totally government-run, except for those who can afford something else approach. And so um, that's why I like to use the the term education freedom.
1: And uh, you said something when we talked about what it was like to be secretary. You talked about going out into the community. And I know you spent a lot of time outside of your office in Washington. You were always on television at a school or whatever. And uh, you talked a little bit about the children, but talk about the parents. Because Mm -hmm. we're now getting a lot of attention on parents Mm -hmm. Um, and many people believe that parents facing what they faced uh, during COVID are awakening to what their kids education is like. So how do you see parents in this uh, in this movement?
2: Well, I think for parents, uh, you know, the last two years in particular has they've had a front row seat to see what their children were experiencing or in many cases not experiencing whether it was extended uh, lockdowns and their children not in person in, in school learning for months on end or mask mandates that came and went or uh, you know, curriculum that came into their homes that they were appalled by, or conversely curriculum that came into their homes that they were uh, very disappointed by due to lack of rigor or any kind of expectation. Any number of those things, uh, and more have really awakened parents to how little they have actually controlled of their children's education. And so I think that uh, you know we've seen parents going to school board, school board meetings and asking questions and expressing concerns like we've never seen before. And I think that's just a, a little glimpse into, what uh, what you know many um, have felt and been frustrated by, and 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 actually want to change for their child's experience down the road. Also, out of necessity, many families found their own solutions. Again, if they had the resources to be able to gather them and and, uh, and do something different with their children if they were not in school in person. We've seen the advent of uh, learning pods, which in my view is sort of like a, a homeschool on steroids with a number of other families or, um, you know, micro schools or any kind of uh, a smaller solution that uh, really has met their children's needs and they're finding that it's actually worked very well for them and would like to have it continue. And so that has, again, given uh, parents a new look into and a, and a view toward what could be for their children as they've had to find uh, solutions out of necessity.
1: And, and these parents now, having become aware um, uh, and, and mobilized in a sense, how do you think about their role in the larger Framework. Uh, I want to talk in a minute about legislation and what mm-hmm. we do at the government level, but how do you think about the role of parents? Because this is controversial. You mm-hmm. hear people say, or some people say, who mm-hmm. then didn't get elected, well, you know, parents shouldn't have anything to say about their kids' education. You hear professional teachers say, but that's what I was trained to do, was to develop curriculum. You have really rather raucous at, at uh, best um, school board meetings Um, how do you think parents can be most effective in this uh, this movement
2: well i think parents can be most effective when they actually are um, given the power to make the kinds of decisions and choices for their children that many thought they had before and they have realized since the pandemic, they haven't had quite that kind of uh, input and influence. And, and so I, I do believe that parents have awakened in ways that um, you know, I haven't seen in the 35 years I've been involved. And it, it, this is particularly beneficial for the lower income parents who have not felt they've had a voice um, suddenly, there's a whole chorus of voices, and it's around many different reasons, and there's many different uh, uh, motivating factors. But, um, you know, th- the family is the primary responsib- you know, place of responsibility for a child's education. And I think parents have, many parents have realized this perhaps for the first time. After their experience this last couple of years, and so it, it's important that they have uh, that they are then empowered with uh, the ability to make those choices for their kids.
1: And <clears throat> does the empowerment come through obviously through education of their own, but where else does the empowerment come from? Does it come from laws? Can you talk about legislation and places in the country that you find particularly? Uh, on the leading edge of doing the
2: right things uh, here for parents. So, uh, you know, for many years we got used to talking about or hearing about uh, funding the education system and systems and buildings and inanimate objects. But um, when we flip that uh, focus to funding students, and if education is really about making sure every student is prepared, you know, for their adult life, we should be focused on supporting those students. And I think about the fact that every year we spend $750 billion, roughly, on K-12 education in our country. And that's roughly $15,000 per child. Much higher in some places, lower in others, but let's just talk about the average of about $15,000. I like to use the metaphor of a backpack. Kids go to school with what they need for the day in their backpack. We should metaphorically be attaching, through policy um, and through law, that money on their backpack for the parents to direct where their children are going to learn. If that means the assigned school that they've been attending is working and is working well for them, that's great, they have that opportunity. But if it's something different, they would have that opportunity also. And uh, what we will see if we actually do this at a scale where all families can make these choices um, is the creativity and ingenuity and entrepreneurship of the American people um, in in ways that we can't even begin to imagine today providing new education solutions that we haven't even begun to think of or dream of. And um, I like to use a little example of a school I've not visited but have heard about from close friends whose grandchildren attend. I live in Michigan. We live in Michigan. It's cold there in you know December, January, February. And this particular school, the children are attending their classes outdoors all day, year-round. <laughs> and they're choosing to do this hardy little kids, aren't they? And the teachers are choosing to be in that kind of an environment. And I just use that as a a very quick example of thinking differently about how we can approach really untapping the potential of every single child.
1: Well, we're clearly not doing some things right, because the U.S. is 13th in reading, 18th in science, 37th in math. Mm -hmm. uh, For a developed country uh, that leads the world uh, in technology and innovation, uh, the world's largest economy, uh, the guarantor of uh, security around the world, these are pretty sad numbers.
2: They are. And and we spend the most. And
1: we spend the most. Mm -hmm. So it's clearly not just a matter of money, but money following the child. So are there um, experiments in the states? Because uh, I'm going to turn in a moment to a comment that you made about federalism, which Mm -hmm. uh, got a lot of a lot of publicity, but uh, as we think about the, the states that are leading, that uh, seem to be making some headway, are, are there places that you're particularly encouraged by, and what makes those states different?
2: Indeed. Um, one of the states I've most often pointed to is the state of Florida, where our mutual friend Jeb Bush, as governor really um, opened the door to education freedom when he was governor now more than 20 years ago. And subsequent legislatures and governors in Florida have continued to build on and expand those programs and those opportunities in Florida, where today, um, it has Florida has the most, uh, the most expansive access to education freedom there's still very much unmet demand, and I was actually sort of wagering a bet that Florida was going to be the first state to introduce a universal choice, education freedom um, environment, but Arizona's going to to beat that um, by the legislation that was just passed there this week. But, um, so some of the things we've seen over the years in Florida are in, Districts where the highest percentage of children are in schools other than their assigned schools, uh, the achievement levels have actually gone up also among those students who have stayed in the schools to which they were assigned. So, you know, logic would tell you that for kids who were not a fit in this, you know, their assigned school, they've found a better fit. And for those that stayed there, school leadership have begun making decisions and changes that have actually improved the opportunities for those kids in those schools which is which is I think a a broader argument around the benefit of education freedom when we have competition when we have something to benchmark against when we have different ways of approaching the same service we're going to have much more I would argue, more, much more robust and better outcomes. Uh,
1: in a few minutes here, we're going to open up for uh, questions from the audience. Um, and I'm a professor, I'll call on someone if nobody raises their <laughs> hand, so please uh, get your, your thoughts. Uh, let me press a little further on this question of uh, what the states are doing. Is, is there a, if you had to draw up a blueprint, you had to say, okay, this was there in Florida, that was there in Arizona, uh, what would be some of the characteristics? Is it gubernatorial leadership? Is mm-hmm. it uh, weaker unions or more cooperative unions? How do we think about uh, the um, the elements of a successful effort to move toward educational freedom?
2: Well, it does come down to both gubernatorial and legisl- state legislative leadership. Um, most every state has encountered resistance from the teachers' union and all of their allies. Um, some states are more, you know, vicious than others, but they're they're there, they're present nonetheless. And um, it does just require, uh, you know, gubernatorial leadership and state legislators that are determined to do the right thing for children. Um, and in some cases, some places it's taken a lot longer than others. In some some places, it just hasn't really even happened yet. And uh, yet, what we've seen in this last year, again since the you know, the the eyes were opened, the last couple of years, what we've seen is a real momentum around state-based policy that is expanding these choices. And uh, I, I reference the most recent one not yet signed by governor ducey but certain to be um, arizona is, has just passed a very major education savings account plan and in educate in my view sorry in my <laughs> view the um, the different mechanics or methods to delivering education freedom are there there are a variety of them but in my view education savings accounts offer the most Opportunities for families to truly customize a, a child's education, and I know that's kind of foreign to talk about customized child, you know, K-12 education, but um, but it's not that far off if more people are empowered with uh, the freedom to make these choices, so that um, one student might take a class or two at a local, their local. Traditional public school, and then perhaps go to a uh, you know a, a private school for a couple of classes, and then maybe take two or three classes online, virtually, or any combination thereof, and um, and and maybe they learn outside for a part of the day and inside for half the day. I don't know. You know, yeah, just
1: but but just to be clear, so an educational savings account, I can take tax-free uh, money yeah, into. It would, a, 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 Yes, go ahead. It would, yeah. it would
2: be a designation of what the yes. state is already spending for yes. you mm-hmm. or for your child, and it would go into an account right. that you had the uh, ability to control, and it would be used for education related matters mm-hmm. that the state and, and each state would do slightly differently, right. putting the boundaries or, you know, guardrails around it. But you could use it for tutoring or, um, in some cases, transportation if your child needed to go to a Uh, perhaps an an apprenticeship possibility in the neighboring county or, um, you know, you you really, the sky is really the limit on how you could uh, provide education for students in ways that we have not yet contemplated because we are so stuck in this uh, model of uh, an industrial input Mm -hmm. and output uh, system. Right. Uh, One
1: more question before we turn to the audience. So I was Secretary of State. I don't think I ever suggested abolishing the the Department of State. (laughs) Well, there's Uh, a role for the Department (laughs) of State. (laughs) Well, some days. Uh, But (laughs) you made headlines in an interview on the book. Uh, recently with a proposal to perhaps shut down the Department of Education. Uh, Just for a little context, Department of Education was created in 1979. It's not uh, a very old department in many ways. It was a kind of uh, Jimmy Carter in 1976 uh, had it as a campaign pledge. He then carried through on it. Just again for context, the only other two departments created uh, since then are Veterans Affairs in 1989 and Homeland Security, created after September 11th in uh, 2002. Mm-hmm. So uh, talk about federalism. Talk about sure. why you think, uh, even if you take metaphorically the shutdown mm-hmm. of the Department of Education, mm-hmm. uh, Washington's role is sometimes misunderstood, overstated, sometimes overplayed. So talk about that balance with federalism and what you were sure. really getting at when you talked about shutting down the department.
2: Sure. Well. First of all, there is no mention of a federal role for education in our Constitution, and um, and it really is a matter that is uh, best left to the states. So um, created in 1979, we've spent over a trillion dollars at the federal level to close the achievement gap, was the express purpose to close the achievement gaps, and a trillion plus dollars later, the achievement gap hasn't narrowed one little bit, and pretty much any way you look at the gaps by whatever measure, uh, they've actually widened in some cases. And the federal, the the Department of Education or the federal level provides only 8 or 9% of education funding, yet it has a massive footprint in regulatory impact on states and local districts. And so the, the, uh, the influence from the federal level, and I would argue it's where the, uh, you know, the status quo headed by the teachers unions have amassed their power there and have continued to essentially control the agenda and, and uh, you know, really um, get into all areas that states and local communities and in fact the family are best positioned to actually decide. Uh, There are a couple of roles that the department, or a couple of laws the department um, oversees that uh, are important, including um, assuring civil rights and ensuring that students with disabilities have the supports they need, but those could easily be done in the context Mm -hmm. of other existing departments. Everything else there is really a, a movement of money with competitive granting with strings attached that uh, that are, are agenda driven. And so when I was there, it was my goal to uh, do away with as much of that as possible and respect the role of the states and push it all back out and uh, really in, ensure that anything we could do under the law that states had the opportunity or the right to do, we let, you know, we ensured happened. Um, The previous administration and the current administration, and and frankly, every left-leaning administration uses that department to further their ideological agendas down through every school and every system in the country. And that's why I believe it, it really has no role to play in the future.
1: Questions from the audience. Do we have uh, folks who'd like to? Yes, I see two right here in a row. You two will be first.
3: Thank you. Well, Secretary DeVos, I have a question for you. That uh, we see that we are going to suffer a recession, an inevitable recession, uh, for the following years, and for China or the superpowers of the United States or Europe. each one of them, if they can concur the problem of the education, then will have the power to bounce back faster from these recessions. And now we see there are a lot of giants with social medias so or the technologies tools that we're shortening or we're, mm, we're narrowing the gap between the, uh, the, between the one who have the most resource, uh, education resources, or the one who are kind of poor that they don't have the resources to. Study so um, at the same time we have a problem is uh, for those kids who can do the codings at their age six or at age nine or well, they are pretty like a uh, genius on the coding side but problem is they have uh, some moral problems and we see that um, on the social media's content there are something that is not limited and I think it's it's going to be very harmful to those societies so how do we balance uh, the power of the social media's or the tech giants as well as providing them the tools to study and uh, kind of um, control or balance the uh, the problem from the harmful okay. content that yes. can, yeah, I think yes. it's a very good. Yes, yeah, good yeah.
1: question, yes. Yeah.
2: Uh, I, I concur that, uh, you know, the advent of social media has complicated uh, the opportunity and the ability for kids to really stay focused on um, learning the basics that they need to be able to, to build from. And and by the same token, the system that we um, continue to perpetuate today is not introducing young people to the opportunities in every area of technology at ages early enough. Now, it's probably very different in this area, but I'm saying across the rest of the country, um, we are not, because the system is so antiquated, it is not really geared toward Looking for opportunities to um, ensure that all students are exposed to what kinds of careers and what kinds of, uh, you know, what kinds of technological uh, careers or pathways they could follow, and that has that has been the case for um, more than a few years. I, I would say that one of the things that we tried to do in office was to really. Um, point out the uh, opportunities that there are for career and technical tracks and education that uh, do not require going to a four-year college or university and to try to break down that stigma that uh, I think has long existed, that you're not gonna be successful unless you go to a four-year college or university. We know there are millions of jobs available today that don't require that. All of that, though, boils down to the fact that the systems that we've operated under really are not forward-looking and forward-leaning in that way. You see little pockets of people doing it and getting it right for kids, but way too many that are stuck um, with a backward-looking view versus what the opportunities are and how to get kids exposed to those earlier on. Yes. Uh, Yes.
1: Next, hand
4: Hello, uh, Secretary DeVos. My name is Philip Lawn from an uh, organization called Bay Valley Tech. So we um, provide digital skills training to our young adults and teenagers for free. We partner with the county office of education, county uh, workforce development agencies, local adult schools, corporate sponsors, and all that. Um, so uh, my question is that um, you, you were talking about choice Um, we're kind of taking that to the extreme providing uh, you know skills based training that's Mm -hmm. uh, you know matter of months right Uh, eight months nine months 15 months folks are able to get into six figure digital based tech careers now and uh, companies are hiring our our graduates Um, you know as we work with or seek to work with our established uh, educational institutions. We don't want them to feel like when organizations like ours come to the table that uh, we don't want them to feel threatened, right? We want to feel like, hey, this is an option to look at. Are there ways to partner together to provide more choices to our students? Do you have suggestions on how we can have that discussion with our established educational institutions where they feel like you know the choices that are coming to the table are not a threat to the established institutions, and that um, they might be more open to partnerships. Mm.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Uh, great question, and I, I would say it you know has has probably primarily has to do with the leadership of whatever district or um, you know system you're working with and talking to. But my experience has been that the system. And represented from you know the federal level on down um, is is very protective of what they know, what they have, and what they want, and um, and doesn't always appreciate a different approach. Uh, again, I think it goes back to supporting policy changes that are going to give more uh, you know more of our fellow citizens the ability to make those choices and control those. Questions and and answers for their own children, and and then young people having you know carrying on with that same kind of decision making power. Um, that is going that that is going to ultimately bring about the kinds of change that need to happen on the scale that I think we're talking about. There's a
1: gentleman in the middle here, uh, in blue, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. down in the middle. Yeah, right there. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh-huh. And please make your questions as quick as you can so we can get a couple more in, okay?
3: No problem. Hello, uh, Mr. Voss. My name is Jose Chavez, a student at UC San Diego and alumnus of the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, My question for you is, should U.S. education policy focus on maximizing college attendance and enrollment or improving the quality of high school um, coursework? I know that 32% of Americans above 25 have a college education, yet your statistics indicate that the college education is not as effective. Um, What do you think U.S. education policies remedy ought to be? More college or high school?
2: Thank thank you for that question, Juan. Um, I I think there should be support for many multiple pathways beyond high school for um, individuals and and, uh, pathways to include uh, shorter-term certification programs and/or uh, you know shorter-term um, certificates, etc. But the you know the policies today don't really support that notion. Again, the push is continues to be go to college, um, and then you have a, a high percentage of students who start college, spend a year, maybe two, uh, accumulate a bunch of student debt, and then leave without having a a real direction. And that to me is tragic. Uh, I think that we have got to get more serious about uh, looking at the wide range of opportunities there are for um, individuals to pursue careers in ways other than a four-year college or even a two-year college. And uh, one of the systems or one of the countries that I think is interesting that we should be looking at much more closely is uh, Switzerland with their apprenticeship program where 75 percent of kids in high school are working in an apprenticeship and we have a very limited view of what apprenticeships look like here and uh, and so I I like to you know reference the fact that the the, um, president and the CEO of UBS one of the largest banks in the world both started as apprentices in a bank. And there's very few occupations that would not in some way lend themselves to a work and uh, learn opportunity. And I think we, you know, we need to get much more serious about that. We actually uh, got implemented an industry-recognized apprenticeship program in our administration, but that was quickly wiped away uh, because again, the unions didn't really want to see that kind of opportunity introduced. But uh, again, I think there's huge um, benefit to exposing young people very early, like much earlier on, to a wide variety of potential career paths, and um, and and doing that in a way that's really intentional, not just sort of happenstance. Uh,
1: right here, the lady in-
2: Thank you. I'm a distinguished career fellow at uh, Stanford.
0: My question is actually, I was fascinated by you saying it's such a big industry, and we've had it for 175 years. The proposals or you know, your motions is all about making it more of an industry, more competition. But I contrast
2: that with the numbers you mentioned about the achievement level. You know, countries like China who don't
0: have this kind of system seem to get better results. So, I wondered what logic or why do you think leaning more into an
2: economic industrial kind of approach will achieve better results? Well, the, great question. And um, if we acknowledge that education is an industry, today it's essentially a monopolistic industry. It's controlled. It's primarily government control for those who can't afford to make other choices. And so, what I'm what I'm suggesting is that by uh, entering, you know, allowing education to be a market-based industry, we will ultimately have a lot more creativity, a lot more um, competition in a good sense, and and therefore a a lot better outcomes with uh, a whole host of different providers, different approaches, and different solutions.
1: I am going to uh, give you an opportunity to close, but I I have to ask, since we're sitting in a university, um, Title IX has also Mm -hmm. been uh, one of your legacies. And uh, yesterday or today, some uh, changes to Title Mm -hmm. IX have been proposed by the Biden administration. And um, not so much into the depths of it, but kind of philosophically, what were you trying to achieve on Title IX, and uh, what do you think we should try to achieve in the future?
2: Um, Thanks for that question. So Title IX just had its 50th anniversary this week, and uh, as I'm sure all of you know, it was passed to ensure equal access to education based on sex. And um, the issue that I dealt with as secretary was primarily how campuses or education institutions needed to handle uh, matters of sexual misconduct on campus. The previous administration had issued a letter that effectively set up kangaroo courts for um, adjudicating these processes. And um, it, was, it did not have the force of law, but it was, uh, it was implemented in the way that it did. And for all, far too many uh, young people on campus who h- had to go through one of these uh, horrific um, you know procedures or processes because of um, you know something terrible that they had experienced. It was uh, it was it was bad for all of them. Really, the framework that had been set up was unfair, um, out of balance. It denied in way too many cases due process, and uh, so we I set about with my team to. Do the regulation around this properly and carefully and I sat down with um, Individuals who themselves had been the survivors of uh, sexual misconduct or um, an incident on a campus I sat down with some who had been wrongfully accused I Sat down with administrators and people who were um, having to actually try to navigate these um, situations and Listened carefully to all of them. We had multiple other um, inputs from those same types of groups, and we went through the very lengthy regulatory process to set up a, a fair and um, predictable and uh, and and very um, a framework that that guaranteed due process. It also guaranteed that for the individuals who had been harmed, they were able to control that process. I heard from, I can't tell you how many individuals who, who had something that they, they uh, that had happened to them, they wanted some kind of a remedy, but they didn't want to take it to a, a whole big investigation or whatever but in many cases the schools had just taken it out of their hands and they became themselves uh, victimized a second time so all that to say we went through the rulemaking process that set up this very um, well-rounded fair framework predictable framework and um, this now this administration is proposing to essentially double down or maybe even quadruple down on the procedures that they had had in place during the Biden administration, which threw due process out the window. And I'm very, very concerned about the direction they're proposing to head. Um, It's going to be public comment period now in the next, uh, I think, 60 days. I urge and encourage anyone who's also concerned about this to. Speak into it. This is, uh, you know, there have been a number of federal court decisions that have clearly landed. Some of them even more, I would say, stringently than the rule that we ended up with um, on ensuring that due process protections are in place. And so this is uh, this is going directly head to head with with uh, a number of court decisions. it, it's gonna be an issue to pay attention to, not to mention the part about uh, how they've proposed to extend the definition of biological sex to pretty much whatever you decide you want to be and, um, and the implications on that for women's sports are, are um, devastating. It, it really, if proceeding the way they have proposed, it will essentially do away with women's sports.
4: Right.
1: Well, thank you. Um, you said in your hearing, I trust parents and I believe in our children. I think it's fair to say that during your term, we didn't have a better representative for parents, children, and for our country in this very important area of education. Um, I hope that we can get the devosses back here from time to time. Mm-hmm. You're welcome any as are you, Jim. Um, and uh, I just uh, am so grateful for all the work that you've done. And please, ladies and gentlemen, Betsy DeVos, Hostages No More. Thank you, Candy.